Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 9. The sovereignty of God. I, I, it is just a fascinating, fascinating topic from God's Word uh, to study. Sovereignty essentially being it's it's God's ball. It's God's ball game. He makes the rules and we choose to play or not. In other words, he does what he wants. And yet we also know that God is sovereign according to his own character and nature. We're going to see that some this morning because he is always working towards our good. Even though, and especially when we don't understand it and and the temptation comes to push against a circumstance or uh, something in our lives that, that has come up. So we looked last week uh, at verses 6 to 16 here in chapter 9. And the way that the, the, the Apostle Paul, if you remember, the way he arranges his thoughts, that, that he puts his objective, that where, where he's going, what he's driving at, at the end in verses 32 and 33. So Fair enough. We cut to the end of the chapter. And uh, I mentioned that my wife would be really comfortable with that. I'm not always. Um, cut to the end of the chapter and, and saw that Israel had stumbled at the stumbling stone. What that means is the unbelieving Jews had tripped. I mean, they stumbled. They tripped over Jesus primarily uh, regarding two things. We looked at that. I'll, I'll mention them here. And, and we'll see them because Paul continues to weave these two things throughout chapter 9. But they stumbled at God's choice of Messiah. They didn't like the fact that he wasn't a political guy like they were. They didn't like the fact that he wasn't a religious guy. I mean, he was very, obviously, deeply spiritual, but not religious. He didn't, he didn't fit the mold. He didn't march to their orders. And that bothered them deeply. As a matter of fact, as the crowds grew, they would be very threatened by him because they were losing their power base. They were losing their grip on the people. They also didn't like God's choice of how he would accomplish man's redemption. Uh, in the new covenant where Jesus in the, in the upper room that night is saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. We looked at that uh, just last week as we came to the Lord's table and received communion and all. That was the essence of the shift in God's plan to redeem man. Prior to that, it had been on the basis of law, and sins could be covered but never eliminated. And that people died, actually their lives were, were when they died, they were either looking forward to Messiah, which was walking by faith, the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, as we see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, or not. And so, but things had gotten so degraded by Jesus's day, by the first century and Paul's day, that the Jews had reduced the beautiful plan of God, whereby he could maintain a relationship with his people, to a whole complex series of rules. So uh, when Jesus came along and <laughs> said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not go to heaven. They were scandalized. That really put them off. And and then as we see, as the gospel unfolds in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, 
they became strengthened in their resolve to put this movement, Christianity, down. So in chapter 9 here, we saw from from looking at verses 32 and 33, where as we got into the text, we saw that Paul began to reach back in Israel's history. And he's going to continue as, as we, this had to be a two-part study, uh, just because of the volume of the information, but he's continuing in that vein. He's continuing in that light in the text that we're going to be in this morning. Uh, he, he, he consistently let the people know in this letter that God is a choosing God and that he had consistently chosen for their good and everything that he had done for them. He laid out that it wasn't the children of the promise, remember, we look, or children of the flesh that counted, but the children of the promise uh, who belonged to God. As we looked at the case in point that he brings out, Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham, a 75-year-old man, <clears throat> being visited by God and told, You're gonna, you and your wife are going to have a baby. And not recognizing at that time, it would be 25 years when he was 100 years old that Ishmael would come along. So he gets ahead of God and at 86 years old has a a son named Ishmael with his wife's handmaid, Hagar. Uh, and, And he was not the son according to the promise. He was the son according to the flesh. And that's what Paul is getting at there. And yet his point was that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Sovereignly. He could have done it any other way, but that was what he sovereignly did. So he goes through that, and then we continued looking there at Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, and, and the fact that his wife Rebecca was pregnant with twins, and uh, Esau came out first, and that uh, remember, we looked at, he said uh, that the older, in, in Genesis, the older will serve the younger. That the birthright and the blessing would go to the younger son. That it would go to Jacob. And Paul, again, his point in that was God chose that. That was divine election. He says before they were even born, that was the case. Before they had an opportunity to sin or to do good or to do evil. And that was how it went. So, on one hand, they were good with his past dealings because they were the beneficiaries of those dealings. Uh, they were the beneficiaries of God's choices, his sovereign choosing throughout their history. On the other hand, they balked at God's choice of Messiah and his choice of how to save man. So Paul is pointing out uh, the huge inconsistency that they had in holding on to this enmity, this hostility towards the gospel and towards Christ. So we left off last week with verses 15 and 16. I mentioned I want to do some work here before we move on. So in chapter 9, verses 5, verse 15, we read, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion you got to understand the context of these things, folks. If you try to read this at face value without going back and looking in the Old Testament at what he's referencing, you can get tripped up. The context here is Exodus chapter 33. Now, in Exodus 33, Moses is still reeling. I mean, he is... <laughs> Exodus 32 is the whole golden calf thing. 
you know, where he's up on the mountain with God. He comes down with the tablets and the children of Israel had taken all their gold and he comes and Aaron says, well, hey, you know, we just threw all the gold into the fire and this calf popped out. <laughs> and, and I just look at that and I think, you know, did Moses say to Aaron, you know, look, I was born at night, but not last night. Because it, it was just ludicrous the way that he tried to shift the blame onto this inanimate object. At any rate, breaking into the middle of a conversation shortly after that, children of Israel still at Mount Sinai, they haven't moved, but God is saying, you need to move. And, and you need to move on. You need to go and take the land that I'm giving to you. Uh, and so there's a conversation that Moses is having with God here in Exodus 33. Breaking into the middle of it, Moses is talking to God. He says, now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I might find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Now God had already declared that they were his people all the way back in Exodus chapter 6. When he says, I will take you for my people, I'll be your God, and, and all of that. So why is he needing to reaffirm this now? Well, because in the chapter before, God was going to wipe them out. He said, Moses, look, I'll just raise up a new people for you. I'm done with these people. Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel with God. And he would do it again when they got to Kadesh Barnea, at the, to the border of the land. So he knows that God had very recently intended to destroy Israel. And, and I'm also thinking that Moses lacked a little bit of confidence here. He's wanting to reaffirm, okay, these are still your people, right, God? And yeah, and, and God's response, of course, is that they are. In Exodus thirty-three fourteen, the next verse, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, rest in the Old Testament is a big deal. That doesn't mean weariness after a journey. What that means is safety and security, it was a big thing to have rest. Uh, I'd love to go into that more because in Hebrews 4, he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't fail to enter his rest. It's not talking about when you're tired. It's talking about a life. So God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a secure life. I am going to go before you in this. So Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here because we won't have rest is what's implied. For how then will it be, will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? Great question. He says, so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. In other words, we will be in that place of chosen people status. Verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses, I'll also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Moses telling God, show me your glory. This is a place where he says, God, please show me who you are. Uh, let me see you face to face. There's some great wordplay in here in the Hebrew that I, I don't have time to go into. But when it talks about God's presence, that word also translates face. And, and it's just a, another study. <laughs> I'm really resisting a rabbit trail on that. Anyway, Moses has to see God's glory. And God's response is this. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious. And here's where he, where Paul is quoting from 
uh, in, in Romans 9, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Talking about his recent rescue of Israel when they had done anything but deserve him to call them his own people. So it says, but God said to Moses, you can't see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. He goes on and he says, my presence will pass before you. You'll look at my backside and all of that. So the point in this is that when God tells Moses he's going to make his goodness pass before him, what he's referring to is his own character and nature. That's his goodness. He's demonstrated to Moses that he had spared Israel after the golden calf, not because of who they were, but because of who he is, based on the, the fact that he is a good God, coupled with his sovereign will. He is choosing. He is a choosing God. That's Paul's point in Romans. That's what we see here in Exodus. By nature, he's gracious. He's compassionate, merciful. We know that about him. And Paul wants the the, the Israelites, the people of Israel in his day, in the first century, he's going back here to demonstrate the, the, the merciful aspect, the gracious, the compassionate aspect of God in redeeming them as a people. He's reminding them. That's what Paul says in verse 16 as we move through here in Romans 9. He says, so then, and keeping in mind this passage in Exodus that he's quoting, It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. See how that fits together? And I mean, it's exactly in context with what Paul is saying here. This is not saying that it's not up to us, that we don't have a say in the matter. We'll look at that as we go along. Paul's essentially saying, how could you possibly begrudge God saving the Gentiles when he has been so merciful to you when you are at your worst? That's his point. You're no better than they are. He's, because the Jews thought they were a cut above. And they weren't. And he knew that. He knew that especially since his whole thing on the Damascus Road, when God got a hold of his life, after being one who had pursued Christians to the death, and realizing that, I, you know, I have had it all wrong. Verse 17, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now he's going to shift gears here, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Now, people sometimes have problems with the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're going to look at that. He's saying here that God chose Moses over Pharaoh. That's these series of contrasts that he's giving, that God is choosing. And that the Jews, they liked that choice. Again, they liked it because they were the chosen people. They were the beneficiaries of his choices. The other thing that's going on here, and this is fascinating, uh, is this can clearly be seen as a warning to the first century Jews. Because it was the same thing. The Pharaoh was doing the same thing as the religious leaders were doing in Paul's day. So the question in this is, what was God's main problem with Pharaoh? 
The answer is that Pharaoh was standing against the redemptive work of God. God said, I am going to save you. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. Again, Exodus chapter 6 declares his intention with Israel, with pulling these people out of Egypt. And Pharaoh was standing directly against the work that God was doing. He was attempting to block God's desire to redeem a people. He was actively trying to thwart that plan. It's exactly what the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in Paul's day, were attempting to do. It's what they did with Jesus. It's what they did in the years and the decades that they chased Paul around trying to kill him. It's what they were doing as he wrote this letter and what they would continue to do into the future. Think, how high were the stakes for Pharaoh? Pretty high. Uh, for trying to block God's redemptive work, he paid a huge price. He had huge losses. He went through the 10 plagues. We've seen that. He, he went through the death of the firstborn of every household in, Israel, in Egypt. He went through the death of his military there in the Red Sea when God closed the sea up. They're chasing Israel through. Israel gets to the other side and he says, well, time for the waters to close. And all there would be is floating chariots and bodies. He had huge losses. But there's a difference. Those were temporal losses. Egypt would recover from those losses. Egypt, and it might take years, but they would get back on their feet. So the question becomes is how much higher would the stakes be for the first century Jews? Insofar as what we're talking about here are eternal consequences, not temporal, but eternal consequences on the line for people who are standing against the redemptive work of God. Heaven and hell, life and death, literally, virtually. So for those Jews that would attempt to block the redemptive work of God and his expression of mercy and compassion towards the Gentiles, Paul is warning them. They have an example from their own history. To to not put themselves into the same posture as Pharaoh and coming against the work of God. He's he's telling them not to resist God's wanting to show mercy and compassion to the Gentiles because he repeatedly, Pharaoh was repeatedly hardening his heart, forcing God's hand of judgment against himself. And we see that. Those judgments, those plagues increased in magnitude and severity as they went all the way up to the 10th with the death of the firstborn. Those, his judgment increased to the point where he lost a lot. So the second part of verse 18, he says, whom he, God, wills, he hardens. Now, God had tried to break through to Pharaoh over and over and over again. In Exodus, uh, <laughs> Exodus chapter, we're going to start in verse 7, or chapter 7. Uh, you don't have to go there. I'm going to whip through these quickly. But he would initially, remember, if you know the story, Pharaoh would initially agree. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll let those people go. And then he would recant. He would start counting the costs. You know, oh, I'll lose all my slaves. And yeah, just, I kind of like having control over all this. In Exodus 7.13, we see, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Exodus 7.22, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. 8.15, Pharaoh hardened his heart. 8.19, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. 8.32, Pharaoh's hardened his heart. 9.7, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard. Every time Pharaoh hardened his own heart, 
He was coming against the redemptive work of God directly. In Exodus 9.34, we read, And then, and when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. All right, so you have this whole line of times where he is hardening his own heart towards the work of God. It wasn't until after Pharaoh had constantly pushed against God that God essentially said, you want it? You've got it, and hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 10.20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. It was only then that God strengthened Pharaoh's heart to resist him. So it's not this spontaneous thing that God just said, well, I think I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to create an enemy. No, he already was an enemy of God. And he got to a point after resisting and resisting and resisting, that God said, all right, fine. I will strengthen your resolve to stand against me. So the question then becomes, what was God's purpose in this? Well, verse 17, Paul uh, quotes Exodus 9, verse 16. He says, but indeed for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So how was God's power demonstrated? Was it demonstrated by the, his judgment upon Pharaoh? I don't think so. No, I, I don't think so at all. I think that God's power was shown in his having mercy and compassion towards delivering the children of Israel from Pharaoh. That's where his power is seen. The point in all of this is God is free to demonstrate his mercy and his compassion to anybody he wants. He chose Israel over Pharaoh. Over and over, Paul's demonstrated God's sovereignty has consistently been demonstrated in Israel's best interest through this chapter. Now, in the Jews pushing hard against God uh, regarding the Gentiles, he's reminding them not to put themselves in that place. Very dangerous place. Very dangerous place today for people to set themselves against God, to set themselves against the work of God. Lethal, as a matter of fact. So the choice before them was clear. They either accept that God had extended salvation to both Gentile and Jew alike on the basis of his mercy and his compassion, as he says here, and they enjoy the blessings of finding themselves in the center of his will or push against him. Blocking his plan of redemption or attempting to, he wouldn't succeed. No one ever does. And risk a greater fate than that of Pharaoh. Very sobering when you think about it, when you look at those out there in our culture, those in our nation that push against God, that would just, they would just want to shut down the church. They would just want to marginalize and minimize the work of God. I love the fact that my father is the king and his son is the king of kings. And I don't have to worry about that. Could things get hard? You know, folks, it's looking more like they will. All the time. Not going to take much for that pendulum to continue to swing in the direction of leading our nation, our world, away from God. But you know, we can lose our peace over that and, and, and that's not where it's at. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but I give you my peace. And that peace is a peace that, that transcends 
anything that's going on in this world. So Paul, now in in verse 19, he's going to anticipate the question that the religious Jew would have. He says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And their reasoning was this. If God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he will, then how can he find fault with man's sin? Isn't God, uh, because he's sovereign, totally responsible then? I mean, if he knows this stuff, how things are going to go, how it's going to come out, isn't he the responsible party? <laughs> Not so fast. No. Folks, this is an aspect, and what, he's, what Paul's bringing out here is blame shifting. I, I want to shift the responsibility for my sin onto God. Or, or onto, you know, the devil made me do it. Anything other than having to take responsibility for my own actions here. And it's as old as the garden. Remember in the garden, Adam responding to God when he's saying, what is this you've done? His wife had already said, well, you know, the serpent made me do it. And Adam's response was, it was this woman that you gave to me. First he blames his wife. I would imagine they had a tough drive home. I've had a few of those. But next, he blames God. He's doing the same thing that Paul is saying that the Jews are anticipating, accusing him of here. Saying that, well, the, the blame, the shift, the blame shifts onto God here. And that's blame shifting. And it's what we do because it's part of our human condition. Again, I warned last week, you don't want to put human attributes on God. Not a good idea. And that's what Paul is warning against here. You can't shift the blame onto God for your sin, for man's sin. Notice verse 20, he doesn't address their question directly. Uh, As we look at this in a moment, he issues a strong rebuke to anybody who would even consider that God could somehow be, be to blame for man's sin or anyone who'd question his sovereign choices. Verse 20, but indeed, oh man, I love this passage. I mean, this is some of the most straight, I mean, straight shooting, Apostle Paul, this is about as deep as it gets, and and this is about as straightforward as it gets. He issues a powerful rebuke here. He, He doesn't even do business with the question. He says, but indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Essentially he's saying, who are you to call God out on anything? People do it all the time. Well, my God would never do this. Well, my God would behave in this or that manner. The question that occurs to me in this is, do you fight God when he does something that you don't like or that you don't understand? And I'm not trying to be glib about it, but good luck with that. Uh, it's not a good idea. When I don't understand the things that God is doing in my life, I fall back on what I do understand about him. That he, as he says here, he is merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. And I may not understand his sovereign choices for my life. Because I'll tell you what, I got a little mental photo album and I've learned this over the years, guys of how my life is going to go, how things are going to be. My life has never fit that. And we need to get rid of that and embrace the fact that we serve a sovereign God who is always 
working for our good. He is not ever not working for your good. I don't care how black it gets, how bleak it is, how horrible the circumstance might be, and we go through them a lot. He's always working for good. So I fall back on what I know about him when I don't understand what I see in my own life, in my own circumstances. So Paul says, don't think that you can call God out on it. That's his point here. Uh, verse 21, he says, does not the potter have, I love this part too, this is great. Doesn't the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Folks, there are two great truths in the universe. <laughs> one, there is a God. Two, it's not you. <laughs> Straight up. You're not him. He's the potter. I'm the clay. Okay, repeat after me. He's the potter. I'm the clay. <laughs> it never works any other way. So the question becomes, how much right does the clay have to tell the potter what to do with it? Zero. In the New American Standard, this is a little clearer rendering of this verse. It says, the potter makes from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use. Verse 22, we're going to read through verse 24 here as we gain a little momentum moving through this. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, understand that, enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. I want you to picture this with me. Picture a potter walking into his or her shop, the pallet of clay on the floor. My wife's a potter. She'll, she'll understand this. The potter is God. The clay is sinful, undeserving humanity. That's what he's saying here. Now, all of the clay is undeserving. If he left it untouched, it would all be useless. Okay? In a situation where everyone is unworthy, the point that Paul's making here is that, that God can bestow his blessings where he chooses, and he can withhold them whenever he wishes. That's a hard truth, but it is the essence of who God is in his sovereign choices. He's choosing. He's a choosing God. He's perfectly just in his leaving some and choosing others. But I want you to understand something about this. And this is really important because, again, you have to mix this with what we do know about God, about his mercy and his compassion. God's sovereignty is never exercised in condemning men who ought to be saved. Never. Rather, it's resulted in the salvation of men who ought to be lost. Understand the difference? That is totally consistent with what we know of the the character and the nature of God. He does not condemn people who ought to be saved. It's not what he does. But he does save those who ought not. Remember, he's not arbitrarily dooming people to hell. I don't believe that's consistent with who he is either. They prepared themselves. He says that the, the vessels prepared for destruction, they prepared themselves. He prepares people for glory. People prepare themselves for hell. They're already doomed by their own willfulness 
and unbelief. He says this is true in verse 24 of both the Jew and the Gentile. It's equal opportunity salvation. It's also equal opportunity condemnation for those that reject Messiah. Verse 25. He goes in now, he quotes the prophet Hosea. He says, as he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called the sons of the living God. What on earth is he talking about? And that's got more twists than Lombard Street. And I used to live in San Francisco. What he's doing here is he quotes Hosea. He, he's going back to a period in Israel's history. And the Jews would understand this. The people that are reading this, they would, if they were steeped in Judaism, they would understand exactly what he's getting at. So he had spoken through Hosea. God had spoken through Hosea at a time in Israel's history when the Jews were in greater sin than the Gentiles around them. They were in horrible sin. They were consumed with idolatry and rebellion. God had even named them, in Hosea, uh, given them Israel the name Lo-Ami, uh, literally, and he translates it there in Hosea as well. It means not my people. <laughs> I am so sick of the way that you uh, are behaving, the way that you have just drifted away from me and you've drifted into idolatry and all of this sin. He says, you're not my people. It was a very low point in Israel's history. It was prior to when they were sent into captivity for 70 years. In that, he's pointing out, they were no better than the Gentiles, that God is a choosing God. But going back into their history, he's saying, look, you think that you're a cut above here and I'm giving you situation and 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 reference one after another from the Bible, from the scripture, because this is the Bible they had in that time, that you're not. He prophetically speaks of, uh, of at some point that they would become known as the sons of the living God. Now, uh, he makes the same claim, moving on here into verse 27, in, in, from Isaiah chapter 10. He's quoting Isaiah 10 here. He says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, uh, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. What he's saying here is that they shouldn't have been surprised at all that all Jews would be saved automatically. That's never been the case. There, you're not in because you're a Jew. He's saying there's a distinction to be made here, but that there would be a remnant, he says, who would choose to be saved. Now, the, the, the point of reference he's talking about here in Isaiah, again, just briefly recapping what was going on in Isaiah, is that the people had been carted off to Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years. When that captivity was lifted and they were told, you are free to go back, many, many, many people had resettled in Babylon. They had lives. They had intermarried with the Babylonian people. They had careers. I mean, they were, they were in good shape. Babylon had been a prosperous nation at that time. Well, in Persia, it came after Babylon. I'm not going to get into the whole empire thing. But the point is, they were released to go back. They're told, you're free to go back. But only a remnant would. A small portion. 
of the people and their descendants who had originally gone into captivity would come back. That's the point Paul is making. It's not all about if you're Israel, you're automatically in. It's about there being a remnant who would be saved. In this case, a believing remnant who had come to Messiah. In that case, a remnant who came back into the land after their captivity. So he goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 1 here. And this is one of the, the <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I, I will never forget the first time I taught Isaiah 1. I was doing prison ministry and I was there in a room with about, I don't know, 60 or 70 inmates. And I titled the message, uh, Machine Gun Fire and Grace. Because God just puts the hammer down with Israel. He said, I am sick of the way that you're conducting your lives. I am sick of your sacred assemblies. I am sick of the fact that you come, your heart is so wretched and you're so rebellious, and yet you spread your hands before me in prayer. I am sick of your sacrifices. And he just goes down the list of all the things that he had ordained that Israel would do, but they were meaningless. They were useless because their hearts were far from him. Into that, in verse 29, he speaks, he says, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left us a seed, a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, that's not a reference to their sexual depravity, which was true of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a reference to them being destroyed. God was finished with them. He was finished with Israel at that point, and he judged them. And yet, he has always left a righteous remnant. Always. I believe that the church in many ways, the, the, the true church, and I'm not saying Calvary Chapel. I'm saying the true church, capital C Church, is a remnant. I believe that those who understand and know and walk with Christ in these days constitute a remnant a percentage of people that make that claim. I was reading an article before church this morning about a, a church right in our community that is so far off uh, advocating the whole LGBT thing and, and just, again, not going to get into it, but it was, it was eye-opening. He's saying, listen, it's a miracle that we've survived as a people uh, because we have been just as wicked as the Gentiles throughout our history. I mean, all the way through in Romans chapter 9, you see reference after reference. If you have a Bible that puts Old Testament quotes in caps, there's a lot of caps. There's a lot of, 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 of reference to the way that Israel had conducted her national life prior to this. And he's saying, we haven't been any better. We've been arrogant in thinking that we are. And I warn people in this church from time to time, you know, don't fall into the, the white hat, black hat thing where, you know, we think, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I've got a white hat. And now all of a sudden I begin to drift into this attitude. It's, it's, it's an attitude of the heart that I'm kind of a cut above those wretched people that are doing those wretched things out there. And yeah, there is a division there. However, if it weren't for the grace of God resting upon my life every minute of every day, I've got a black hat. You've got to keep that in mind, folks, to not be as Israel was, to become arrogant about being the ones who are holding the oracles of God because that was what their history 
started out as when God commissioned Israel to be his people, they were to be a light unto the nations, that they would show the mercy and the compassion of God to the nations around them, and they never carried it out because they got caught up in their own stuff. They looked inward rather than look outward and to see that they were called to be separate, but called to speak into the world around them. Same thing that God does with us, different covenant, same principle. So the first time that Israel went into captivity, when God judged them for their rebellion, 70 years. The second time, 2000. And if you were born before 1948, in your lifetime, it's come about. I wouldn't come along for another eight years. But my point is, in, in just in recent events, God has demonstrated he is not finished with this nation. He is not, his work with her is not done. Woe to the people that turn their back on Israel. I look in, in the news, I look at the posture of the government, and I'll tell you what, that promise that he made to Abraham, I believe absolutely still stands. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Still relevant, especially relevant since he reestablished her after 2,000 years as a nation, bringing her back into the land. Verse 30, he says, well, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who didn't, did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, this is amazing. I love this. This is the heart of the truth of the gospel. Because what Paul's saying here is it's not about pursuing righteousness. That's what Jesus was always talking to the religious leaders of his day, saying, you know what? You clean the <laughs> outside of the cup, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You go about, you parade yourself, you, you want to be seen for your, and in your long robes and for your, your wordy prayers, and you want to have all of this stuff, but inside, your heart is rotten. It's not about pursuing righteousness. They thought that in those things, in their keeping the endless lists of rules, that they were creating righteousness, and that if they did enough good stuff, that that would be their ticket to heaven. And that was exactly what they taught. And yet, the amazing thing about the gospel is in all of their religiosity, he's saying, you don't cut it. You don't make it. But the Gentiles, by simply believing, by simply coming to a place of having faith in the finished work of Jesus the Messiah, that they're included. And that that is what's important. Uh, he says, if by faith you're pursuing Christ in that you gain infinite righteousness. Because he's saying that it's not about, it's not that it's not about righteousness. It's about how you obtain it. You don't obtain it by the law. That's what he's saying here. You obtain it by faith in the work of Christ. And when you obtain it, it's not that you're trying now to work your way to heaven. Is that you have been, and we looked at this in Romans, guys, that you have been utterly declared righteous, spotless, sinless, holy. That's <laughs> The list goes on. The things that we receive at the moment of our redemption are true. And we didn't do anything for it other than believe. He's essentially saying, Israel, 
you who pursue law, you think you're there. You're not. I want you to notice something too here in verse 31. He says, Israel has not attained to the law of righteousness. He does not say Israel could not. These weren't, pre, they, 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 folks, they were not predestined without a choice. Were they predestined? Yes. Did they have a choice? Yes. If you look at predestiny and free will, they balance hand in hand. If you try to take one position to the exclusion, exclusion of the other, it falls apart. Both are taught. Both are true. Both appear in our finite minds to be incompatible with one another. And yet, actually, they create a full picture of the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God at work in our lives. And yes, there are choices that we make to enter into that. He says they, they didn't seek it by faith. That is their work. That is, that is what man does. Again, coming full circle, these guys stumbled. They tripped. Uh, <laughs> verse 32, he says, why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And here's that that part of verse 32 that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So they tripped. They stumbled over Jesus. They stumbled that God would make salvation so simple. They had made it infinitely complex. They stumbled that God would use a carpenter from Nazareth of all places to be their Messiah. They stumbled big time that God would extend salvation freely to the Gentiles. That's us. Unless you're Jewish, then welcome. They stumbled at the fact that God had made salvation a gift. They couldn't handle it. Man, it, it, it twisted their heads. And Paul, in, in again, he starts this chapter with talking about how he just has this profound grief, this profound sorrow in his heart towards his countrymen, towards those who are Israelites according to the flesh. He's saying, look, you got it wrong. I want so much for you to enter into the promises of God on the basis of grace, not on the basis of works. He's also reminding them that the condition that they found themselves in here in the first century was prophesied more than 700 years before. Verse 33, he says, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul now makes his final point from the scripture in Isaiah in chapters 8 and 28. And through that, he draws a bit from each of those in this passage. He's making a twofold statement, a twofold people. He's saying, look, there are two choices that people make with the gospel. He's saying some would stumble and some would believe. He says they stumbled again. Romans 9, I'll tell you what, gang, Romans 9, it's a chapter that's full of the sovereignty of God, the sovereign choices of God. But it's also a chapter that clearly defines the responsibility of man. Again, you see, both are, both are present here. Both are taught. Both are true. One falls apart without the other. He's making two points to the Jews as we wrap up this morning. The first is God can do anything he wants with whoever he wants, whenever he wants, period. 
He's God. We're not. He's sovereign. The second is the Jews needed God's forgiveness. Every bit as much as any Gentile. It was equal. The playing field had been leveled. However, they were still a unique and chosen people. We'll get to that, uh, especially in chapter 11 here, where we see uh, very clearly what, because Paul in these chapters, he, he, he goes past, present, and future. Chapter 9 is looking back. It talks about Israel's past. And, and then as we get into chapter 10, we'll look at present and then 11th future. The point is, they were still his chosen people. They still are. He, he, his work is not completed. And yet, praise God that their rejection, as he says further here in this exposition about Israel, their rejection is our benefit. It's our glory. Their rejection, that, that they rejected and God sent the, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. Actually, part of it was to make Israel jealous. Looking forward to that as we get further into it. Case in point, for each of us, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus, the Messiah? Do you know him? Are you known by him? Do you have circumstances? Do you wrestle the circumstances that you might not understand? You're, I don't get this. And, and, and if you've ever had a question, well, how could a good God and then fill in the blank? The answers are here. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, let today be the day. If perhaps your heart has wandered and you want to come home, let today be the day. Allow him to work in your heart. Give him permission to shower your life with grace. You do it through a simple prayer. It sounds something like, God, I've lived my life apart from you. I've not lived a life that's pleasing in your sight. I know I am a sinner. And yet I also trust that Jesus went to that cross to die for my sins. As a result of that, simply trusting God for that, asking him to forgive you and asking him to come into your life, come into your heart. There's a new life that awaits. And that's where the righteousness he talks about here is added to your life in infinite measure by simply believing, trusting God for your sin. Let's pray. Father, as we have sprinted through this chapter and and put out a lot of information this morning, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring to our remembrance, each one of us, Lord, the things that you want for us to come away from here with today. And they may look different for some. And yet, Lord, we know that you're good and we know that you're personal and that you are a loving, personal, sovereign God exercising your will in our lives individually. So I pray, Father, for each one. Speak to us. Draw us closer. Help us to understand that when we, even when we don't understand, because there's so much about your sovereignty we don't understand, that you're good, that you're gracious, that you're compassionate, that you're merciful, and that you come to us in that posture. Lord, I pray that you would find hearts that are yielded to the working of your spirit within and that, Lord, our lives would be lived out in the open, wall to wall for Jesus, Lord, and and that we would let our light so shine before men 
is that they would be noticing that light and glorifying you. That's our desire, Father. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name.